Amen. Now your Bibles turn to the gospel according to John chapter 8. I want to welcome everybody officially to 2024. With this new year, I had taken a break just around Thanksgiving time from the journey we were in going through the gospel according to John. We'll return to that. And if you remember when we were there last, Jesus was in the temple for the feast known as the Feast of Tabernacles. This feast commemorated the presence of God among his people during much of their wilderness experience and many of the things that God did for them while there. Now, in the previous readings earlier in chapter 7 and then in chapter 8, it was clear and as we read the Bible, it's very clear that Jesus, as he was gaining in popularity with the people, there was one group of people he was not popular with at all, and that was the religious leaders. Yet, as he would appear at different uh, settings and here at the Feast of Tabernacles, people noticed that it's clear he's here. Everyone knows he's here, yet the, the leaders weren't laying a hand on him. They weren't uh, taking hold of him. They weren't arresting him or taking him into custody. And it's at that that this exchange begins that we're going to cover today. Now, earlier in this gospel, John declared, and John's gospel in particular provides what's called the many I am sayings of Jesus. Earlier in chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Now, bread at night, that was important as a metaphor, especially back in those days. There were many, many homes that that was their daily sustenance, bread and water. So bread and water considered the basics for sustaining life. And Jesus declared that life requires not only coming to him, but then believing in him. For he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and who believes in me shall not thirst. Again, that was one of the many I am sayings we will cover and see as we go through the Gospel of John. Today, we will look at another I am saying. John chapter 8. I'll begin reading in verse number 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness to myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I, I am one who bears witness of myself and the Father who sent me bears me neither bears witness of me then they said to him where is your father Jesus said you know neither me nor my father if you had known me you would have known my father also these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come now John touches on this concept this picture of Jesus being the light of the world in the very beginning of the gospel, if you recall, where he said in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness 
did not comprehend it. Life with Jesus has for nearly the, the church's entire history often been portrayed as walking or living in the light. By contrast, life without Jesus has often been portrayed as walking or living in darkness. And yet one of the things I will focus on today is not just that Jesus said that he is the light, but that he is the light of the world. He said those who follow me will walk, those who follow me will not walk in darkness, implying that those who don't follow me walk in darkness. That those who follow me, that follow Jesus, will have the light of life, implying that those who do not walk with Jesus don't have this light of life. And then what ensues is this conversation between Jesus and the religious leaders about the validity of his statements and the, and the truth of his testimony and witness, which I will get to later. But first, I want to highlight and spend time on something that has often been true of Jesus and the religious leaders that we see in verse 27, which we didn't cover, where it just says they simply did not understand. Ever have someone not understand your commitment, your devotion to the Lord? Not understand why you follow Jesus so passionately? Not understand why you treat others with respect who don't treat you with respect? Why you return good for evil? Why you embrace ways of living that don't seem to be modern or progressive or hip? Ever have anyone not understand why when someone hurts you, you don't hurt them back? Ever have someone not understand why you don't see things in the light of, well, people can believe whatever they want as long as they're happy? You see, throughout literature, deep understanding has always been pictured that you're in a place and then once you begin to understand something more deeply or understand life more deeply, that the light has been turned on or it's often been called being enlightened. In fact, right around the same time as the Protestant Reformation when Luther and his buddies were just basically saying we need to get back to the basics of the Bible. There was this period called the Enlightenment where there were a number of thinkers, at least they called themselves thinkers, I'm not sure how deeply thinking they were, but there were these thinkers who believed that, well, if we're going to look at the Bible, we need to look at it from a much more human perspective and we need to see things in the Bible as it pertains to, to the reality of everyday life. So what we need to do is basically take out anything in the Bible that refers to a miracle because they just don't happen every day. And that thinking was called enlightened. I have other words for it, but we will go on. You see, people think when, that they are enlightened when they live differently than the old Bible ways because they think they're better. People think they're enlightened when they embrace lifestyles that somehow they can't understand why the Bible calls these lifestyles sin. People think they're enlightened when they place their hopes in the human heart. After all, 
People will tell you over and over again when you're going through a situation, just trust your heart. You have a pastor in this church who is never going to ask you to do that, never going to encourage you to do that. I'm going to ask you to trust the Lord, not trust the human heart. Proverbs is clear. The heart is evil. And the only time I'm going to ask you to follow your heart is if it's clear what or who your heart is following. People think they're enlightened when they look at labels that we've known for centuries about male and female, and well, let's look at them differently now, and let's get rid of them altogether. Yet Jesus connects walking in the light or being enlightened not with how progressive society is. He doesn't connect being enlightened or walking in the light with having some new philosophy or being able to get involved in some new thing. He connects walking in the light or being enlightened with following his ways and following Jesus. First John chapter 1 verse number 7 reads, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The comparison here with walking in the light, it's not just that we walk in the light, because people can say, well, I am walking in the light, and it's my own light. But it's walking in the light as he, Jesus, is in the light. And it yields two things. We have fellowship with one another. Everywhere you go in our culture, every place you turn in our society, people are saying, Basically, what Rodney King said decades ago, why can't we all just get along? <laughs> and they're looking for that key to human harmony. I have the key. His name is Jesus. When we come to Jesus, he gives us a light that we can have fellowship with one another. And he also says that his blood cleanses us from all sin. So in this verse in 1 John chapter 1, it's not just the key to harmony with one another, it's the key to harmony with God, walking in the light. We want peace in our nation? Our nation needs to walk with Jesus, the light of the world. We want peace in the world? Then this world needs to walk with Jesus, who's the light of life. We want peace in our homes? Then our homes need to walk with Jesus, who is the light of life. Now why? Because Jesus is the light of the world. Not just the light of the church or the light for those who believe in him. He is the light of the world. It is the light he gives that opens our minds to seeing people differently. It is the light that he gives that opens our hearts to offering grace to those who don't deserve it because we realize we don't deserve the grace that God gives us. It is the light that he gives that empowers us to bless others that don't bless us and in fact bless others that curse us because it's the human natural reaction when someone does something bad to you to do good to them right not likely it is the light that Jesus gives that empowers us to do good to those that do bad to us and it's because for us and we'll use the phrase, the lights have been turned on. First Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse number 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil, reviling for reviling. 
but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. People need to understand that this kindness that they can see from Christians, this compassion that we give to others, that we're able to extend, is not because there's some inherent good in us or because we're just wonderfully nice people. Now, I want us to be wonderfully nice people, but we are this way because the lights have been turned on, and that light is Jesus. Jesus opens our eyes to a whole new way of seeing the world. When's the last time you turned on the news late at night, watched all the news reports, and based on the information the news gave you, said, what a wonderful world we live in. No, I don't think so. I think the last time anyone could ever say that, there was this guy named Walter Cronkite who was giving the news long time ago. But when Jesus turns the light on inside of us, he gives us eyes to be able to see things in a whole new way. He gives us the ability to see things not just as they are, but as they could be if people would just get their hearts right with God. Jesus gives us eyes to see a whole new way of looking at the world. Jesus gives us new eyes or enlightened eyes to be able to see other people as he sees them. Now, I know this is tr um, not true for any of you. Because all of us here have only wonderful people in our lives. But there are people out there who look around and all they see is creepy people. I know that's true for none of you. Every single, I'm trying to finish it. Every, without smiling, every single person in your life is wonderful and God-fearing and just pleasant and happy all the time. Nope. But Jesus gives us the ability with enlightened eyes because the light has been turned on inside of us that we can see people even on their worst days the way Jesus sees them. Just like Jesus can look at you and me on our worst days and, and see ourselves the way Jesus sees us. Which is my next point. Jesus opens our, our eyes to a whole new way of seeing ourselves. Now, I'm not a big one who's going to promote the secular concept of self-esteem. Because in much of the way in which our culture defines self-esteem, it just gets defined by the Bible as pride. Having said that, there's nothing wrong with a healthy way of looking at yourself. There isn't anybody who has given their heart to Jesus who is wrong in looking at themselves the way Jesus does. And church, Jesus looks at you as precious. He looks at you as wonderful. He looks at you as amazing. And oftentimes the biggest issue we have is not with seeing other people the way Jesus sees them, but seeing ourselves the way Jesus sees us. And this all becomes easier when the lights get turned on. The whole conversation that followed Jesus saying, I am the light of the world that follows is a declaration that shows how much darkness the leaders were walking in. They focused on the idea that Jesus' proclamations of 
who he was were his own and that nobody else was corroborating them. That there were no credible witnesses. And this was going back to, and it's found in the Old Testament, that according to Jewish law, nothing could be substantiated unless it was done so by two or three witnesses, and the witnesses had to be credible. It just couldn't be two people you found on the street and paid off. Jesus reminds them that he does have a supporting witness, and that's his heavenly Father. So Jesus had a corroborating witness, and they would have known that if they had any idea or any relationship or any deeper knowledge with the Father. In fact, he says in verse number 18, I am one, with, I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. I would say Jesus had pretty good corroborating evidence in his corner. Now during the Feast of Tabernacles there were two rituals that were performed. One was they would pour water over a rock to commemorate God providing water coming out of a rock and that's found back in Numbers chapter 9. Also huge lamps were lit to commemorate the pillar of fire that guided the people as they lived in tents throughout their wilderness journey. Oftentimes, it's been recorded that when the Feast of Tabernacles was being conducted by the Jewish people, that the light they would light would basically be seen throughout all of Jerusalem. In this context, with these pictures and these rituals, it's here that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now, People might miss it, and people are going to argue with it, but he does not say, I am a light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. He's not offering himself as one among many lights. So often do we hear in what has increasingly become a pluralistic society that, well, it's all the same God. We kind of worship in different ways. You do things your way. You call him what you want, and I'll call him what I want. That, to me, is people who, for whom the lights have been turned off. There's no light of life in them. Now, I have to admit that no matter how evil or how misguided people in the world become, I tend to have some sympathy for them. Why? Because they're walking in darkness. They're walking with no light inside them. Now, then the excuse goes away because the light has been offered, and I definitely have much less sympathy when I see people in God's house or in the church or in the body of Christ who basically are walking as if they're children of darkness. That, to me, makes no sense. Jesus provides the light for the whole world. Jesus is not only the world's best option, he is the world's only option. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. And he said, nobody gets to God unless you come through Jesus. Now, some are going to say, well, that's not very fair. Talk to him about it. <laughs> if you have an argument or a, or a complaint, about the way Jesus runs his world, go talk to him. I'm sure he would love to hear from you. Following him is not just something that some people do. I've heard from so many people that they have this idea, well, I'm not going to push on this person because 
you know, being a Christian is not just their way. Jesus made it clear. He is the way. And he is the only way. Everyone can follow him. Now, we follow him differently. We have different ways and different expressions. There are many different styles, many different types of, of, of worship, many different styles of music that gets used. If it's, it's true worship is not determined by how loud it is, it's true worship is not determined by how many instruments are used, true worship is not determined by the quality of the, the vocals or any of those things. True worship is if it comes from a heart that the light has been turned on for. That is true worship. I have been on some men's retreats where the men got to singing from true worship. And it was a beautiful, beautiful thing to see the men deeply engaged in worship. It sounded awful. Because the men who had gathered for this worship had not been gifted with voices. But that didn't matter. What mattered is that their hearts were worshiping Amen. their Savior. Amen. And we've got this idea in mainly in the American church, but in the world in general, that true worship has to fit a secular standard of excellence. I believe in excellence. I talked about that last week. But when it comes to worship, for it to be true worship, what's in our hearts? And what should be in our hearts is a light. Because Jesus is the light of the world. And everyone, everyone can follow him. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses nine, verse number 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus gives this light to the world for everybody. Everybody. Jesus wants everyone to come to the light. That means everyone can come to the light and that means he is, he is calling and he has a way for even people who we can't figure out in our wildest imaginations how in the world is that person going to ever be able to come to Jesus I'm sure people thought that, thought that about Saul of Tarsus this was a man who was not high on the evangelism list he was in every way shape or form by any definition an enemy of the church there were many Christians who were sentenced to death and that sentence carried out because of the actions of Saul of Tarsus. And then one day while he's on his horse heading, I forget where he was heading, but he's heading someplace. Damascus. Right, heading to Damascus. And Jesus says, I want to talk to you. And he basically knocks him off his high horse in a number of different ways and basically gets a hold of his heart. And it's interesting to me because the initial reaction, the initial understanding or physical reality for Saul of Tarsus is that he is blinded. He cannot see physically, but the light has been turned on in his life. He now can understand Jesus and basically refers to him in that conversation as Lord. What do you want me to do? Jesus wants everyone to come to the light. So one last point. Ephesians chapter 5. 
Verse number eight. Because this is for us now. All of us here, I believe, are walking in the light. Ephesians chapter five, verse number eight. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We are people who, ha who have had the lights turned on. So let's walk that way. Let's treat others that way. Let's spread his grace that way. I'm sure everyone realizes that God has dealt graciously with you. He has extended grace to you. So many times we hear in this world, especially during difficult seasons, that God, you're not being fair. Yet when I get up in the morning or when I'm meditating on some, some aspect of the goodness of God and I realize how good he's been to me, I look up to the heavens and I say, God, you have not been fair with me, and I thank God for that. God's not been fair to me. He's been good to me. <laughs> I don't deserve any of his goodness. I don't deserve any of his blessings. I don't deserve any of the gifts he's put, uh, he's put in my life. He's not been fair to me. He's been gracious to me. And I thank him for that. So we need to walk worthy and spread that grace to others. Let's show the world that Jesus is the world's light and he's their only light, which means he's their only hope. That was difficult for the people in the first century to understand. They were not looking for a suffering servant. They were looking for someone to help overthrow the Roman Empire and free them from bondage. But Jesus was looking to bring a light to a very deeper internal bondage. And I believe he's do, trying to do that today. So many who want to be set free, but they're talking about external freedom when they're so wound and bound inside. Let's be people who ourselves walk free. You can always tell when someone truly is free by the list of things that sets them off. Now, I know, again, nobody here, but there are some people in the world that are just really touching. You could sneeze, or someone else sneezes, and you wind up saying, God bless you, and they go off on you. What do you mean by that? Well, I think the meaning is pretty clear. Don't be pushing your religion on me. All I said was, God bless you. Now I want to say under my breath, God help you. <laughs> and it's little things like that that sometimes just set people off because we are a society that is just a, a group of walking powder kegs. But Jesus can turn a light on that brings freedom and that brings peace. It used to be, and I'll close with this. When I umpired baseball, I umpired it for 15 years. And given the number of games you would do in an average year, which anywhere from 80 to 100, so that's about 1,500 games over the course of 15 years. And things get intense. Coaches get a little carried away. Um, coaches and players were never the worst of it. 
it was parents. Because parents, especially of the younger ones, oftentimes I would see on a baseball field, if I went to umpire a game that was for two teams that were in the 15 or 16 year age group, there would be very few fans there. But if, you went, if I went to a game where they were kids in the nine or 10 or 11 year old age group, the entire neighborhood would come out. And everybody from in those kids' families would come out. Even if they were family members who didn't really like each other, they came to watch this little kid play baseball. And they got into it. And they couldn't understand why every single time their beloved baby boy came to the plate, it wasn't a home run. Nevertheless, if that mean, rotten, nasty umpire would dare to call their baby boy out on strikes, and I had to convince them of this wonderful principle in baseball called swinging the bat. Please, swing it, and I won't call you out on strikes. But over the course of that time, oftentimes things get heated, and I was present when my partner would often throw somebody out of a game. And it would usually follow in a heated exchange that was just kind of ugly to watch and inappropriate, especially when children were around. And I would see that nearly every weekend or every time that I was umpiring. And someone asked me once, who had partnered with me a couple of times, I've noticed something. You don't argue with the coaches. No, why? Well, why should I? Well, because they're so often wrong. And I go, yeah, and your point? So what if they're wrong? Well, don't they get under your skin? And that's when I had to explain to them what you had to do to get under my skin. That in 15 years of umpiring high school baseball and youth baseball, I ejected three people. For many of my partners, that was a weekend. Three people. And they're like, why don't you eject more people? I went, two reasons. One, that's not a good scene for the children to see the adult that they have respect for being sent to the parking lot and being thrown out and tossed aside. Two, usually, well, there are three reasons. Two, usually the tossing of somebody was followed by this ugly argument, and I'm not going to argue with people about this stuff. And three, and maybe it was the major reason, if I toss somebody out of a game, I've got to go home and there's so much paperwork I have to fill out in order to be able to then justify why I tossed them. I would just rather forget the whole game existed when I got home. But when I was in that setting, and when I was in that, that, that whole arena, I really prayed before I left the parking lot after I had gotten dressed and went to the field, Lord, let me be a light. Now, I wasn't there to preach. No one knew in the 15 years that I was a minister. I just wanted to be a light. And I do remember one time toward the end of the 15 years, one of the parents who I had seen over the years, when she, when she saw me coming to the game, she smiled and said, oh, good to see you. How often do you say that to an umpire? <laughs> good to see you. And I just kind of looked, oh, thank you. And she could see that I was kind of puzzled by her response. And she later came to me and said, I said good to see you because you're always so pleasant. You never 
curse? <laughs> no, I never did. Imagine if we could be that in all of our settings. I wanted to be light. Can we agree that this world is dark? That this world is blind? And what it needs is light. Now that means we're going to be putting up with a whole lot of darkness. But the best way for God's people to be used in this age is to have the light shine in dark places. And there are plenty to choose from. That's my encouragement for us today. Jesus said he is the light of the world. So let's go out there and be light.